Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. You're listening to Season 3, Episode 3 of Kicking the Kairiarchy with me, Elena. This is the original intersectional feminist podcast that aims to subvert and challenge the norm by providing a platform to voices, stories and narratives ignored by the mainstream. Okay, alright, I think we're getting into the swing of things now a little bit, you and me. We've released three episodes and the world hasn't totally imploded, physically speaking at least of course, it could definitely do with some work in some areas. And that's why we're here, to challenge the mother flipping hierarchy in the best way we know how and that's by sharing and telling stories. Right now we're exploring reproductive health. So far, in this series of episodes, we've spoken to Diane in episode one, an activist who was part of the effort that helped legalise abortion in the UK in 1967, and then Gabriella in episode two, who spoke very matter-of-factly about the abortion she had in the UK recently. This episode, we will be exploring the health system and the impact austerity and the government has had on our sexual health services. Sexual health clinics are closing all over the country because of budget cuts. And if you're in big cities like London, you might not necessarily feel the pinch. What about people who live further afield in less well-connected areas and then add on the additional needs associated with being LGBTQ plus and it becomes even more difficult? This is just one example of how looking after your sexual health has become a class issue. So to help me explore this, I've invited Dr. Verity Sullivan on, and as always, I'm going to let her introduce herself. My name is Verity. I'm a 36-year-old cisgendered white woman, um, and I'm a specialist doctor in sexual health, contraception and HIV, and I currently work in South East London. Thank you so much for coming on and chatting to us about this topic for this episode, which we're kind of exploring reproductive health and all the various facets and identities and things really that make this topic up in Britain today I guess really. My first question to you, given everything that's kind of going on in the world in terms of I guess going on in the government but can you just kind of like set the scene for us? First off I think it's great that you guys are opening a dialogue about this because within the field obviously as professionals we're all quite aware of the effects of budget cuts and things on sexual health services and you know, we all talk about it a lot, but I think in terms of the public, you know, obviously it's something the government don't bang on about, they don't advertise. Um, and I just don't think there's a lot of awareness. So I think it's great that you're talking about it today. So thanks Thank ever you. so much. Um, so I can just sort of very briefly give you the kind of yeah. 
political kind of budgety side of things. Yeah. Um, I'll try and make it brief because I don't know. I hear the word austerity and my mind kind of glazes over. Yeah. And I start thinking about what I want for dinner tonight or something instead. But um, well, we we know what austerity is. So um, essentially, the country is in an economic crisis. The government decides to implement policies where it reduces the amount they spend on public services, and within that, you've got things like education and healthcare, which we're talking about today. Yeah. So you will have seen, I'm sure, you know all the news coverage about, you know, NHS crisis um, and, you know, basically healthcare can't keep up with demand, essentially, with our growing population, evolving technologies, things like that. Um, but sexual health and contraception um, has been hit very hard. Um, and there's a bit of kind of a longer story around that. So around sort of 2012 and 13, the government implemented a policy called the Health and Social Care Act. And there were lots of things that this changed. But one of the things that it changed is it removed the way that sexual health services are paid for. And what it did um, is it meant that local authorities or local councils were then responsible for funding their local sexual health services. So say, you know, you live in Lambeth. Lambeth Council are then responsible for deciding how much money gets spent on your local sexual health and contraceptive service. The problem with that is that the money that local councils get to fund those services comes from the public health budget. And because of austerity, the public health budget has been slashed beyond belief. So just to put it into context, so in December just gone, in 2018, the government announced they were slashing the public health budget by £85 million. And between 2014 and 2020, um, it's estimated the entire cuts will be around 700 million. So, I mean, you know, even those figures just saying them out loud, you can see that, you know, what what are these councils supposed to be doing? Okay. So what is that in like, in terms of percentage? How much are we talking there? I don't know in terms of percentage exactly, but what I can tell you is that year on year we're spending less despite the fact that demand for sexual health services is increasing. So a recent survey showed that in 2017 versus 2013, the number of attendances at sexual health clinics has gone up by 13%, but despite that, the budget has fallen dramatically. Why is it then that our public health services are taking such a battering? Well, I mean, I think that's sort of a question for kind of government, really, hey? <laughs> yeah, true. Um, you know, and it, it's not just healthcare services that are suffering, obviously. You know, yeah. there's, you know, education suffering, you know, law enforcement, all sorts of public services are all um, really feeling the pinch. And, you know, uh, you know, as a nation, we're not very, very happy about it at all. Um, in terms of sexual health, uh, you know, the fact that we rely so so keenly on this public health budget and we rely so much on our local councils making decisions you know that's an awful lot of responsibility um and you know these massively stark cuts you know as i said it's not something the government's really talking about you know lots of other things are going on at the moment you know brexit 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 type thing and it's kind of really removing focus from the fact that these other things are actually going on a little bit under the radar 
You talked about the £700 million. Is that by 2020? Yeah, so that's predicted by 2020, yeah. What is the impact that that's going to have on our local services? Well, I think another thing to say is alongside these budget cuts, other things have changed as well. Okay, so... Um, when um, local authorities uh, commission or provide a sexual health service, uh, what they quite often do is they put um, an idea out about what they might like from a service. Um, and what lots of different providers or companies can then do is they can bid for that service. So, for example, I might be someone in local council, I might say, I work in this area, I need a sexual health service that can provide STI testing, contraception. And in particular, we've got a really, uh, you know, big young people's population where we live. So we need a dedicated young person service as well. And I would put that kind of contract out and I would say to all these different healthcare providers, who can give me the best price, essentially, who can give me the most for my money? Um, And the problem with that is that you can then get, obviously, NHS services, well-established services, you know, bidding for those contracts. But what you can also get are then private providers, okay? So you might have heard of privatisation of healthcare servers who might say, well, we can do it as well and we can do it for less. And the problem with that is that quite often private providers can give you more for your money, but quite often your quality suffers a little bit with that as well. You're losing all the expertise of very well-established services that have been around for a long time. The other issue with that is that you can then get services that are being provided by lots and lots of different people, which isn't really very good for kind of continuous service, okay? Mm -hmm. Um, And what you then lose are some of these really well-established partnerships that you've got between clinics, okay? And the other thing that you lose is the fact that, you know, different services are being paid for by lots of different people. So just to give you an example, local authorities commission STI testing, contraception and HIV prevention services. Okay. However, if you then go to a clinic and you're diagnosed HIV positive, you'll move into a HIV specialist centre, which is actually paid for by somebody else. It makes it very, very difficult for different sectors of sexual health and HIV to all work together. And that's a term uh, we use called fragmented commissioning. Okay, it makes it very hard for patients and doctors to kind of manoeuvre their way through different services, um, which can essentially just make our work more complex and and it can um, also make it more difficult for patients. I think in terms of how this is actually going to affect people, basically it's going to affect anybody that needs to come to a sexual health service. Now, by no means, you know, not every single person in the UK is having sex, but a pretty large proportion of them have had sex, are having sex, or will have sex in the future. Okay. Um, And, you know, unfortunately, I think even though it's 2019, we do still live in a society where there's quite a lot of stigma around seeking sexual health care. So, you know, for example, if you have a cold or you break your arm, you wouldn't hesitate you know, emailing your boss and saying, oh, I need to be off for a few days. But if you've got horrible genital herpes or like a raging case of syphilis, you're not really going to phone your boss and say, I need a week off, which is really awful because those things can make you feel really unwell. And, you know, for a sort of general kind of population issue, you know, there's already so many barriers to people trying to get into sexual mm. health. If the government's then going to provide even more barriers by saying we're cutting the amount of money we can give you, we're cutting the amount of services that we can provide, you know, how are people supposed to be encouraged to seek good sexual health and take responsibility for their sexual health? What will happen is because of the reducing budgets, essentially services can't stay open as much as they would like. Um, so what's actually happening around the country is a lot of sexual health and contraceptive services are closing so they're just shutting their doors 
um, a lot of services that are able to stay open are having to reduce their hours, which has happened to my own service, unfortunately. Um, uh, people are sometimes having to cut staff numbers. Um, and, you know, in particular with contraception, which we might get a chance to talk about a little bit more later, you know, they're restricting services. So they might say you can only come in if you're under 25. I, I mean, you know, it, it's just basically it's discriminating against certain groups. Um, and what will happen within that is, you know, you've got this kind of overall effect of people, um, you know, not being able to access services as they would wish. But there'll be very particular vulnerable groups within that that will suffer the most. Women, the LGBT community um, and particular, you know, smaller, more BME uh, and the BME population in particular. And so do you have any insight in, uh, into why um, it will be women, LGBT people, BME people that will be suffering? Yeah, sure. So, um, so essentially what will happen is, you know, you have to remember that some groups will experience poorer sexual health than others, okay? And um, what's I think what's important to maybe describe is I think that some people think that a sexual health clinic is you walk in, pee in a pot, get a packet of tablets and that, that's you all sorted, which couldn't be further from the truth, okay? So just to put it in context for you, so in my sexual health clinic, for example... Um, I very rarely see somebody that just comes in and wants an MOT, okay? Someone that doesn't have any symptoms, they just want to get a sexual health check. They will generally be given a home testing kit that they can take home, okay? Um, or they'll be assisted to do their own samples in clinic. They won't take a lot of time, okay? Healthcare professionals, so doctors and nurses working in sexual health, our time is generally saved for more complex patients, so using our expertise accordingly, okay? And in sort of an average day for me, I might see somebody with a very nasty STI, you know, quite bad gentle herpes, for example, a nasty case of syphilis, um, perhaps, you know, drug-resistant gonorrhea, which is an increasing problem now. Um, I might see somebody who's a new diagnosis of HIV that needs some extra counselling and work. Um, I might see a victim of rape. I might see someone that's undergone FGM and is uh, experiencing problems for that. And we see a lot of safeguarding cases as well. So, you know, young people that are experiencing sexual abuse, grooming, that sort of thing. And these are patients that are never going to walk up to the reception in a sexual health clinic and say, hello, I've been raped. Can I be seen quickly, please? Quite often these patients will have taken an incredible amount of balls to come in the first place will want to see a doctor or a nurse and then you know I'd have to talk to you and work out if I trust you or not I'd have to talk to you and work out what the risks and benefits are of me perhaps telling you my story are you going to help me am I going to get into trouble for telling you you know and by reducing access to sexual health clinics these patients are losing a voice okay in an average day you know we have to turn away a certain percentage of patients because we just don't have space to see them okay and if that one person who's been getting abused by their partner for the past six months decides that's the one day they're going to try and come and we tell them they can't be seen what happens to them so you know, when we're losing this opportunity to really help people that are asking for help um, because, you know, people don't just come in and tell you straight away what they want. And I think another sort of similar thing might be, um, you know, for example, um, you know, a young gay man that comes in, you know, he's maybe had his first sexual encounter. 
um, you know, he, what he doesn't know what he needs to do. You know, that requires, you know, a long consultation where you're talk to, talking to somebody about safe sexual health, getting things like vaccination against hepatitis B, which we offer all men who have sex with men. Talk about PEP, PrEP, uh, CHEMS, that sort of thing. And, you know, often what we can then do is we can refer people on to relevant support services and um, holistic support services, things like that. And these are all people that are going to miss out. Um, and talking about the BME community in particular as well, um, you know, a, a sort of a good example of this is, you know, if you look at HIV rates, for example. So HIV, it's not all bad news. HIV rates are going down okay, in the UK, which is absolutely amazing. And that's thanks to... Uh, the fact that you know people are on treatment now if you're on treatment your virus is suppressed you can't pass it on to anybody mm. else people are taking prep which is pre-exposure prophylaxis a tablet you can take that prevents you acquiring hiv in the first place um so rates of you know hiv have gone down by like a third up to about 45 percent in london even yeah um, but rates of what we call late diagnosis are quite high still. Okay, so late diagnosis just literally means you're diagnosed HIV positive um, when you're already quite sick from HIV. Um, and the group that that affects most are black straight men. Okay, black heterosexual uh, African men. So Hi. yeah, so we need to work harder at getting to these groups of people to encourage HIV testing and to reduce stigma within communities about getting a HIV test. So if you're reducing the amount of appointments you can offer people, if you're reducing the amount of you know, outreach and holistic care you can offer to people, how are we supposed to fix that? I'm actually kind of like blown away by how deep this runs. And, you know, this isn't just talking about your average like 16 year old going to a sexual health clinic and just wanting free condoms. This is talking about rape survivors, survivors of abuse. This is talking about like victims of FGM. You know, this is talking about, like you said, like the heterosexual black men who are being diagnosed late with HIV. Like these are very deep issues. How does it affect you then when you have to to turn people away at your practice and when you know that you can't help people? Well, it's awful. I mean, it completely goes against, you know, your principles as a doctor. Do you know what I mean? You've yeah. been trained to be able to offer people help when they ask for it. And particularly in sexual health, you know, they're very sensitive issues that you deal with. Um, and you're absolutely right, you know. A 16 year old even coming for condoms. I mean, that takes balls to yeah. do that when you're 16. Absol you know yeah, what I mean? so true. Exactly. And, you know, you know, I think the thing to sort of point out is that we do have a lot of safeguards in place in clinics as well. So, for example, in my clinic in South London, we have a do not turn away policy. So there are certain, you know, if, if a, a patient comes in who's 17 or under, we will see them. You know, we will stay late. We will see them. If a person comes in and does explicitly tell us they've been raped, they need post-exposure prophylaxis, they are on our do not turn away list and we will see them. But I think the point I'm trying to make is quite often people won't tell you that, right. okay? They come into their appointments, they tell you they've got a bit of discharge, they tell you they need the pill um, as a sort of an in almost, okay, uh, just to try and get into the consultation room and work out if they're able to confide in you at all. Um, I think a big thing to mention is probably contraception as well, because that's something that's really, really suffering at the moment. Um so the Family Planning Association, or the FPA, uh, did a report called Unprotected Nation back in 2015. Um, and they basically looked at the kind of you know, long-term financial implications of contraceptive services being cut. 
And they estimated that for every £1 cut in spending would result in an 86% increase in a long-term spend for the government, just in terms of increasing NSTIs and unplanned pregnancies. Um, I think, like I said already, you know, if you're reducing your clinic hours, then you're reducing access to emergency contraception. You're reducing access to people getting hold of different methods of contraception and having the opportunity to talk about the different methods that are available to them. Um, and the other thing is, yeah, you've got this age restriction. So in some places, you know, if you're over 25, then you're restricted, you know, your access is restricted because obviously if you're over 25, it doesn't matter if you get pregnant, right? Right, obviously. Um, obviously, yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's really bad because, you know, as a nation, we're actually very lucky, you know. I mean, there's these much bigger issues of, you know, the fact that contraception has to come down to women. There should be more choice. There needs to be more research for um, male-led methods of contraception. There needs to be more research into, you know, side effects from contraception. That's a different issue, right. I think. But I think what we do have to focus on is the fact that we do have access to a wide range of contraceptive methods. It is free, Um provided you can get hold of it and personally I think it's quite a you know at a time when I think globally reproductive rights are being questioned particularly you know you look in the US at the mm. moment I think the government has to be quite careful okay because you know the government's always very kind of pro you know equality women's rights but actually if you're limiting women's access to reproductive health care then that's quite a big statement you know and it's really really important to keep women's access open because that way you know you're allowing people to make choices you're allowing women just to have sex for the sake of having sex rather than procreation okay and i just think personally that's something that we have to be quite careful about a lot can happen in the next three years like a chatbot maybe your new best friend but what won't change needing health insurance United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I mean, this is a massive priority. You know, you talk about women being able to have sex without 
getting pregnant you know not just for procreation and that is like you know women should be able to have that power over the, and the autonomy over their bodies and what they do with this and this is absolutely a women's rights issue and it shouldn't be something that's just like swept under the carpet we're, so currently right now we're in London, we're sat in Leicester Square, we're right around the corner from Soho, you know, I've been to 56 Dean Street on my lunch break and gone and got a full STI workup within great, an hour. Great, stuff. Yeah, you know, so I'm really lucky in that sense that there's something on my doorstep, I live in London, there's clinics dotted all over London if I really wanted to get the help it's pretty accessible for me but you know what about your average person who lives like in the sticks in the country somewhere you know or what about a, a young LGBT teenager who lives uh, in the middle of nowhere and has to you know rely on their parents to drive them to town yeah I mean devastated right if you yeah, <laughs> yeah. absolutely what does this you know is this a class issue well I think the, the w- I think you've made a really, really good point because what what is sometimes a bit more interesting to look at is actually which groups are being disproportionately affected. Right. Okay. And if you look at STI rates, okay, and rates of poor sexual health, they're highest in young people age 16 to 25. So exactly as you've mentioned, the people that are relying on mum and dad to get them places, people that don't have a lot of money for public transport. Exactly as you said, if you don't live in London or another big city, you might have to travel like tens of miles to get to a sexual health clinic. So these people are being discriminated against, particularly if you know their local clinic has just been shut down because of austerity. The other group is um, men who have sex with men are disproportionately affected by STIs and we know that the LGBT community is disproportionately affected by poor sexual health and mental health issues linked to sexual um, health. Mm. And then the third group is yeah, black minority and ethnic communities as well. Um, so yeah, you're absolutely right. There are absolutely certain groups that are being really um, discriminated against within this. Um, and I think another thing that's important to mention is, you know, despite all this kind of gloom and doom I'm kind of telling you about, you know, sexual health, you know, the specialty is really proud of the work that it does. And yeah. we're still always making really big strides to try and improve things as well. A really big thing that's come in recently is, um, I don't know if you've seen online testing that you can do. I think so, yeah. Yeah, so um, particularly in London, the majority of clinics now, you can actually get a home testing kit um, you can do it yourself at home and then send it back to the laboratory and you get your clinic results very quickly um, or you can order it online as well. That's great if A, you're literate, <laughs> yeah. you know how to use the internet, you've got a good sense of assessing your own risk and you're going to be able to understand the instructions that are sent to you. So it's a really great initiative for moving um, work away from overstretched clinics but it obviously only serves a certain population which are going to be people that know how to you know, people that are just perhaps you know better with their language um, and maybe people that are just a little bit more comfortable you know with with accessing that sort of service the people that aren't going to be able to maybe do that and the people that maybe do need to see a doctor oh yeah you're kind of long, young LGBT community that need to come in and talk to a doctor or a nurse about what's going on with them somebody that's been experiencing a problem like we've discussed already so I think one group um, of patients that are going to be affected are young people so in particularly 17s and unders so for all intents and purposes when you're still 17 and under you're still classed as a child okay right. um, 
Now, I think as I said already, if you are 17 and under and you come to the majority of clinics, you will get seen, okay? Um, Most clinics have a sort of do not turn away policy, so they will really endeavour to kind of see young people where they can. Um, I think the problem is, though, is even if you're being told you're going to be seen, that doesn't mean you're not going to have to wait, okay? Um, And we did some work in our own clinic, um, sort of talking to young people, sort of saying, how can we improve your kind of experience? And they're all just like, look, I've finished school at three, I've got to be home by five, otherwise my mum or dad or whoever's not going to know where I am. If you can't see me within that time, then I'm going to go. And I think, again, it's a bit like that young person's probably really had to like get the balls up to come in in the first place. We really have to kind of make things easy for them to come in, you know. Um, and we do have increased rates now of um, sort of issues in the young population, you know. Um, there's a lot of, you know, uh, there's a real lack of sort of discussion around, you know, good sexual health consent what are kind of sexual norms um which you know is very much linked to kind of the lack of sex and relationships education in schools that is non-lgbt inclusive as well that's probably a whole other podcast i imagine yeah um um but you know and particularly where i work in south london you know we've got high rates of grooming sexual coercion um and you know I just think for people listening that maybe think, you know, sexual health doesn't really affect me. Well, if you know any young people, if you're going to have kids yourself, you know what I mean? Actually, young people can find themselves in quite difficult situations and sometimes being able to access a non-biased service for help can be a real lifeline. So I think it's just about remembering that even though you might think that you never need sexual health, actually at various points in your life or members of your family's life or friends' lives, services you know, can literally be just so, so important. And I think that's why as a population we do have to kind of really get behind services and kind of appreciate them, you know? So yeah, absolutely. So uh, yeah, y- y- you're absolutely right. It's always going to affect some groups more than others. Yeah. Yeah. And so... Um, I think there's been a quite a lot in the news about um, increases in um, STIs, particularly syphilis. Mm-hmm. Maybe in London, I could, or or in just in general. Why is that? Why we is that just because pe- more people are going in and getting tested, or is there actually something going on? It's probably a few different things. Okay, so yeah, it can be really easy to sort of say STI rates are all going through the roof when you actually dissect it. It's not all doom and gloom. So. HIV rates, as we've already talked about, are are decreasing, which is fabulous. Rates of genital warts are going down. So that's thanks to the um, uh, HPV vaccination schedule that girls are now receiving at school. So that's really good Mm. news. Um, uh, Rates of chlamydia sort of seem quite steady-ish, but do, again, disproportionately affect young people. And that's why we really need to keep getting young people in for tests. Syphilis rates, you're absolutely right, is the big thing. So... Syphilis rates are at their highest now than they've ever been since like the late 1940s or something bonkers like that. But the group that it's affecting is is men who have sex with men. Um, now, the thing is, some of the percentages you might see are really big. It's like increased by like, you know, 150% or whatever. The figures were so small at the beginning, you don't need to increase it by tonnes for it to sound like a huge increase. Right. But it is really significant. It is really significant. Um, a lot of it will be to do with more testing. Um 
you know, we know particularly men who have sex with men um, are using sexual health services more than they used to in the past. A lot of it will be to do with sexual behaviours as well. Okay, so um, particularly um, in the HIV community, um, if you're on treatment, you know, that's the best thing you can do to start, uh, to prevent uh, passing on HIV. So people are now maybe not using condoms so much. So that might be a reason why syphilis rates are going up a bit. Right. Um, and the other big thing to remember is you can pass on syphilis through oral sex as well. And, you know, in the sexual health community, we know that people don't really use condoms for oral sex. It just doesn't have to be anal or vaginal sex to pass on, uh, pass on syphilis. So that is something to remember as well. Okay. Um, and you, you mentioned earlier uh, the mental health impact that this is, that this can be having on people accessing, you know, reproductive health services. Are you able to expand on that a little bit more, you know, thinking about, um, you know, I'm thinking about people who won't be able to, who are struggling to get access to, you know, uh, if they are like a survivor of some sort of abuse um, or if they want to go, they would just want to have a conversation, find out their options. You know, what is the, this is obviously going to have a knock on effect, surely. And is, is mental health a part of that do you think well yeah definitely i mean we know that sexual health and mental health are linked okay um and i think particularly um for you know for certain groups so our lgbt community and um, you know within that particularly in our trans community there's extremely high levels of poor mental health um and i think the first thing to sort of point out is that if you can help people make you know, good decisions about their sexual health, if you can empower them, if you can enable them to make healthy choices, that's a tool you can give people for life. I think the second thing to say is quite often people come in, um, they've maybe really struggled with their sexuality or their, you know, their gender. And quite often it can be a bit of an in coming and talking to a professional. We can say, well, look, you know, I can give you direction towards peer support groups, one-to-one support groups. Um, You know, I can give you some direction. You're not alone. I think that's a really big thing as well. I think something to point out is that because of the budget cuts um, that we've discussed already, unfortunately, a lot of support groups have lost their funding as well, Mm. uh, in particular HIV support groups. Um, support groups for you know uh, other communities um, like the LGBT community um, they've lost they've lost money and so they're not able to um, provide the services that they could before which is just such a travesty because I think sexual health is a really incredible specialty in that you know the strides we've made in the past 30 years just surpassed you know I think anything that anybody could have expected and I think in you know, 2019, we are in a position now where, you know, people are more open-minded and, you know, I think we are making really, really good progress and it's just the worst time possible because, you know, I think it can take years and years and years to make a teeny little bit of progress Mm -hmm. but it takes no time at all for that just to fall away again. Um, So for me, it just feels like a really, really pertinent time that, you know, this support needs to keep going. So what does the future look like? It's really difficult because, you know, so many changes have already taken place. Um, so the British Association for Sexual Health and HIV, that's one of our sort of lead bodies and they're a real voice uh, for sexual health and HIV in the UK. And they did a survey and what they did is they spoke to all their members. So that's mainly healthcare professionals that are working in sexual health. 
Um, and they basically said to them, you know, how many of you have had to sort of turn patients away within the past week? And literally over 60% of people said they'd had to turn patients away. Uh, many people reported, you know, cuts in clinic hours, real dissatisfaction, essentially, with the fact that they weren't able to see the patients that they would like. So I think, unfortunately, a lot of a lot of these changes are already happening. Um, my honest answer is I don't know what the mm-hmm. future holds. Um, we're still doing some really positive things. There's a lot of really positive changes still happening, you know. Um, but I think a lot of it's just going to depend on what the government decides um, and in terms of funding because that's just what we rely on so heavily now. Right. Um, if anybody wants, if anyone does want to sort of support the kind of challenges that we're facing uh, the British Association for Sexual Health are doing a petition at the moment mm. um, if you google it it's called Save Our Sexual Health Services SOS and it's a um, 38 degrees petition and we're trying to get 9,000 signatures and we're very very close um, so you can just go on and sign that if you're right. interested as well So one thing that I just kind of thought of that I wanted to double check so you mentioned that um, contraception is free if you kind of if you know how to access it what are the options you know because I, I remember when I went to university and they put me on the pill, I didn't go on the pill for contraceptive reasons, but it ended up just being like a bonus. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> they put me on it for my skin. And the doctor um, wrote like the female sign on my prescription, you know, like the sign for it and was like, oh, because you'll get it for free that way. Like, are there instances where it's not for free or, or is it always free? Um, I guess I'm trying to get at the accessibility of contraception and trying to like debunk some myths about it um so as far as i'm aware anybody of reproductive um age and capabilities so to speak yeah um anybody that doesn't is able to get pregnant and doesn't want to get pregnant can access contraceptive services for free okay um the access we've talked about but once you're in there um absolutely you can get hold of whatever methods that particular service offers right so you've got to remember that that will vary from clinic to clinic so the hospital i work in is what we call a tertiary service so we offer you know the vast majority of of, of contraceptives um some smaller clinics might offer a limited selection right. um um your GP will be able to offer, um, you know, a varied selection depending on who they've got working at that clinic. Um, and there are some sort of uh, companies now that are offering kind of online um, contraceptives as well. Um, there's some, there's a company called SH24 in, in South London that we're working with at our own clinic in South London who are offering online prescriptions for the pill to try and reduce women's mm. um need to come to the clinic for for, for, for repeat prescriptions um, I'll be honest I'm the, the I'm not aware of any instances where you shouldn't be able to get hold of something right. um, uh, where you shouldn't be able to get hold of contraception right. no okay. um, but I think a really important thing to say is I think a lot of patients find they go in and they don't actually have ample opportunity to talk about the methods of contraception that are available to them i think that's something that you should try and push if you can it's important to know what what options are available to you 
Um, and if you do try, you know, a method of contraception, like say you try a contraceptive implant and you just don't like it, you don't have to stick with it. You should be able to go back and say, look, I have tried this. It's not for me. Could I try something else? Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think, again, that's another thing when, you know, you're making it difficult for people to get in and get contraception. Quite often they'll be like, you know, it took me so bloody long to get this one thing. I'm not going to like go through all that again, which is just awful because then a woman has a really bad experience of her contraception um, and a bad experience of her health, ex- her health um, encounter as well. We should be making it very easy for women to sort of go in, have open front discussions, to try different types of contraception, um, to encourage people to want to use it in the first place, you know? Yeah, absolutely. How can we be allies, I guess, to our NHS in terms of, you know, our reproductive health, our sexual health clinics, our local services? How can we be better allies to, you know, you guys, the doctors helping us? How can we be better allies to the people accessing the services? You know, what can we do to help? Yeah, I mean, it's a really, really good good question. Um, Well, the petition I've mentioned... um, I think on a sort of individual level, I would say, you know, when you come to a sexual health service, when you come to a clinic, you know, you quite often, if you do get an an appointment, particularly in a walk-in sort of service, you know, you're going to be waiting for quite a long time. Um, That's not acceptable, but there's not always tons we can do about it. So sometimes just to remember that doctors and nurses are working as hard as they can to try and get you seen. What I would personally recommend um, is, you know, if you do go to your sexual health service, you do have a really long wait or you're not able to access an appointment, write to your your local MP. Write to your local MP. Tell them about what's been happening. Um, you know, it's actually really, it sounds like a real faff, but it's actually really easy to write to your local MP. You can just literally Google them or you can look on Twitter and find their handle on there. You can literally just write, you know, I went to get you know, an implant fitted today. I went to get, you know, X, Y and Z and I got turned away. Like, why is this happening? You know, I think until, you know, us professionals can talk till we're blue in the face, but, you know, we do need the support of the public to kind of say, yeah, this this is affecting me on a day-to-day level now. Um, So I would encourage that. Right. That's a really good point, actually, because I never thought about that I could write to my MP and I never Mm. considered how easy it is. And... I think the fact that you've just said and kind of demonstrated how easy it is, there's no reason why you couldn't just drop a tweet, you know, in 280 yeah. characters or whatever yeah. it is. And so my final question, what are you working on? This is a platform for you to kind of like, you know, share what you're working on, your work. I know that you write quite a lot about yeah. this. So how can people find you and your work and whatever you're working on? Oh, well, thanks. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I do some writing around um, uh, some of the stuff we've talked about today, just trying to increase a bit of awareness. So, um I have a website if you want to have a look at that um if you just type my name in verity sullivan sexual health it'll hop up and there's just a list of some of the articles i've written so again there'll be a little bit more detail about some of the stuff we've talked about today um yeah that's where that's where i would direct you i'm sort of usually working on something or other so a few things pop up now and again amazing (laughs) verity thank you so much you're welcome really appreciative thanks for having me thank you As always, thank you so much to Dr. Verity for her time, knowledge and patience with all of this. I appreciate that with all our guests, this is a lot of, you know, emotional and intellectual labour. So I'm really appreciative of it. 
As always, I'm really keen to know what you guys think. Is this something that's affected you? Let me know. Get in contact. You can find me on Twitter at KitKairiarchy or you can drop me an email, kickinthekairiarchy at gmail.com. I read everything that you send me and I try to respond to it as much as possible. And it's so important. I love hearing from you, um, any feedback or anything like that. So yeah, definitely get in contact. Um, if you've listened to this episode and you think that you want to get involved and you want to take some action, think about getting involved with some charity. So for example, there's the LGBT Foundation, which is a national charity delivering advice, support and information services to people within the LGBT community. All the Terence Higgins Trust, who also provide lots of information and resources for LGBT people who are affected or just want to learn more about their sexual health and sexual health services and they're always looking for volunteers as well so if you aren't in the position to donate maybe you've got some time that you can volunteer however having said that i do appreciate that there is a lot of privilege associated with being an activist having the time and the money to be able to do things not a lot of people have that so even just doing things like this listening to a podcast putting in the effort to hear from other people that's enough to be honest so if that's all you can do that's absolutely fine if you've got the time uh, rate and review the podcast subscribe to it until next time thank you so much for listening and i will see you in two weeks for episode four we're going to be talking to dr annabelle about decolonizing contraception which i think is such an interesting topic so you definitely do not want to miss that i'll see you next time Okay, I have two new obsessions that I need to share with you. Impress No Glue Press-On Mannies and Impress Press-On Falsies Lashes. Trust me, these are getting ready game changers. Both require no glue, so there is no damage to your natural nails and lashes, no mess, and no annoying dry times. Just one step and you're done. Boom. Instant glam. Visit impressbeauty.com slash presson and use code PRESSON25 at checkout for 25% off Impress Manicure and Press-On Falsies. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.